morning studying the book of Romans together. If you're with us this morning and without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, just wave to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning for your convenience, and please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Romans chapter 7, we'll, I'll read it in its entirety. We'll cover the entire chapter today, so I think the, the tendency can be to break it up into two or three studies, but it, to me, it spoils the entire flow of, of uh, what is literally a life-changing message that's found in the chapter. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, in verse 1, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And so then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment, produced all in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the condemnation which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Or the commandment, rather, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, delivered me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing... I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I, I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, 
warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a priceless chapter containing priceless truths in a priceless book called the Bible. And we pray, Lord, that you would freshly fill us with the fullness of your Spirit and give us a supernatural capacity to hear uh, from your throne, Lord, by your Spirit, what this chapter has to say to us as a church and what it has to say to each and every one of us individually. Thank you for the work of your Spirit that is able to go where we could never go to make sense of what we could never make sense of. And so minister to us, Lord, in the privacy and the beauty of our relationship with you today. And for those that don't know you today, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. For all of this, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that's needed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> in chapter 7, Paul continues his instruction concerning our sanctification uh, as Christians. And sanctification is the theme of Romans chapter 6 through 8. Again, as I've mentioned a couple of times in our study of the book of Romans, I tend to look at the book as a progression of any individual's life from before the time that they become a Christian uh, all the way through uh, to becoming a Christian and then ultimately reaching spiritual maturity. And, uh, and that's the progression that I see in the book of Romans. In chapters 1 and 3, we have uh, someone who is unsaved and uh, in a condemned condition. In chapters 4 and 5, uh, they hear the gospel and become born again. And then in chapters 6 through 8, they begin to grow as Christians. In chapter 6, it becomes clear to them that God has not only provided for the forgiveness of sins past in our Christian life, or not only provided us with the confidence of being in heaven one day in our future, but has also provided us with a victory over the power uh, of sin. He's provided us with a victorious Christian life. And then in chapter 7, ignorant is so often a Christian can be at that point early in their Christian life, uh, and ignorant of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, the person tries to rise up and endeavor to accomplish the victorious Christian life in their own strength. And then uh, always, as is the case in the chapter, failing miserably, always failing miserably. But all of that merely uh, sets the stage then for chapter 8 to then prepare them to discover the, the single great key to the victorious Christian life and that it's found in the person and the work uh, of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapters 9 through 11, they grow deeper in their understanding of God and theology and, and in God's ways. And then in chapters finally 12 through uh, 16, they grow into maturity in terms of their own obedience to God's Word and, and then also in Christian service. 
And so we followed now, as we come to Romans chapter 7, we followed this progression, a progression that every Christian recognizes within, within our lives. And we followed this person from their unsaved condition to becoming a Christian and now, uh, now desiring fully to live their life for God. The sanctification uh, simply means it speaks of being holy. It speaks of being set apart to God. It speaks of being Christ-like. Jesus is the most holy life that ever lived in human history. Every definition of holiness ought to be run through his life. And if it doesn't match his life, then it can be tagged as a phony man-made marker of, of holiness. To desire to be holy is to desire to be uh, like him. And, and this uh, holiness not only involves saying no to what is obvious in terms of sin and in terms of bondage, saying no to sexual immorality, saying no to drug use, saying no uh, to uh, uh, drunkenness and, and, uh, and stealing and lying and these kind of sins, but to be sanctified is to desire not only to be freed from those things, but to also to have our lives marked by a love we've never known before in our lives, by a grace and a mercy in our lives towards other people that we've never known before, by a patience with people that we have never possessed before, or by peace and joy and long-suffering and all of the rest of, of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul uh, lays out in Romans chapter 5. I want us to also remember this morning that while justification happens in an instant in the Christian's life, the moment that we trust in Christ for salvation, we are born again by the Holy Spirit, and we are justified. And God provides us with a forgiveness that is so complete that when He looks at us, He looks at us and sees us just as if we had never sinned. But while justification, salvation happens in a moment, our sanctification is something that will occur all the days of our Christian life until one day we leave this world and we enter into the glory of heaven, and at that point we will be made uh, perfectly holy. I think it's also important by way of introduction to remember what we've already learned uh, in terms of sanctification from uh, chapter 6. And again, chapter 6, teaching that God's plan of salvation not only provides us as Christians with the forgiveness of sins past, the confidence of heaven in our future, but it also has provided us with the power to live a godly, holy life now, free from the power of sin to live a victorious Christian life. And as we saw in the last uh, two weeks in looking at Romans chapter 6, that Paul encapsulated these three, uh, these great truths in four great words. The word know, the word reckon, the word present, and the word slave. But what happens so often when a Christian becomes aware of the victory that God has provided to us, and that he's provided us with a victorious Christian life, an ability to live free from a life of bondage to sin. What happens so often, especially in a young Christian, in a new Christian, is that upon hearing all of this, our very first reaction to that good news is to then try and accomplish our own sanctification 
by way of, number one, law, by the keeping of some set of rules, whether it be the law of Moses, which Paul is talking about here, or some other law that we impose upon ourselves, or we allow other people to impose upon ourselves, telling us that if we keep these laws, that we will actually be holy. So there's this idea that I achieve sanctification, the victorious Christian life, by way of law. The second great tendency that most of us have is to think that, all right, I, I'm going to accomplish the sanctification in my life by way of human effort, by way of uh, great determination in my heart uh, to, to achieve that, or some combination of both of these things. It is not a coincidence at all that in Romans chapter 7, the word law is used 23 times to speak of this great tendency in our life of trying to accomplish a holy life by way of law and the utter failure of that. It is also not a coincidence that the words I, me, my, myself are used fully 50 times in 25 verses of chapter 7. In this chapter, you have a Christian who falls into the trap of Romans 7 Christianity. That is, who upon becoming saved and learning that salvation, again, is not merely, uh, you know, the forgiveness of sins, the penalty uh, of sins, but also uh, from the very real power of sin, and now determines in the light of that news that they're going to enter into the victorious Christian life by virtue of their own human effort and by virtue of their own strength. In other words, God has saved me. God has, uh, I love him so much for it. He's given me an entire Bible full of commandments. And because of what he's done for me, the gratitude that I have toward him, I, I'm eager to obey these commandments, to bless him and to honor him. And so the Christian then rolls up their sleeves and they go to work. And now determined to accomplish his own sanctification and his own strength by the keeping of the law of Moses or some other law of our own making. And very, very excitedly in thinking in all of this, this is simple. I'm born again. I love God. Now I'm going to do what he tells me in the, in, in the Bible. All of this should be simple enough. But there's one glaring problem with the plan and the glaring problem is this. If we could not keep the law of Moses to save ourselves, the, the, the single most important thing that a person can accomplish in their life is salvation. If we could not keep the law of Moses to save ourselves for something as important as that, then how in the world can we think that we can now keep the law of Moses to sanctify ourselves? But somehow we do, and we think that, and then we're going to try. And it always ends up in complete failure and frustration, as is recorded in the latter uh, portion of the chapter. Because the Christian life is not one in which God saves us and then provides us with a book full of commandments, which we are then to try and obey in our own strength in order to accomplish our holiness. This Christian life can only be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
which Paul then goes on to speak about in Romans chapter 8, but we'll remain focused on chapter uh, 7 here this morning. Now, this chapter not only examines the utter frustration and, and the, the failure uh, that is always at the end and must inevitably come with trying to live the Christian life on the basis of law or our own strength, but it, additionally it speaks to us about, and, and very wonderfully, about how to avoid it. And that instructs us in verses 1 through 4 as Christians that we are not under the law of Moses. In verses 5 through 14, that the law of Moses cannot make a person holy because it was never intended by God to accomplish that in the Christian's life. And then number three in verses 15 through 25, it speaks of the absolutely, indescribably miserable Christian life that, that results when I try to live the Christian life on the basis of law or my own strength. And so we begin with verses 1 through 4 here, uh, that as Christians we've been freed from the law of Moses. And when Paul writes uh, Romans chapter 7, he anticipates a protest uh, by his Jewish uh, readers. And the protest that he knew uh, would emerge within their heart and their mind, he knew that it would come from his statement in chapter 6, verse 14. Uh, look at that if you would. Where he wrote, for sin shall not have dominion over you. And then here significantly, for you are not under law, but under grace. For the Jew, uh, the law of Moses provided both the supreme motivation for sanctification, for holy living, and not only did the law of Moses provide a, the supreme motivation for living a holy life, it alone in their mind provided the roadmap for a holy life. It, 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 you wouldn't even know what you were aiming at without the law of Moses. And their immediately thought, immediate thought upon reading what Paul wrote there in that verse in chapter 6 is here Paul telling us that we're no longer under law but under grace. They would have thought something like this. Listen, Paul, if you tell people that they are no longer under the law of Moses as a standard for their conduct, they will become lawless. I mean, you are going to be removing and removing the law of Moses from their lives. You're going to be removing their only hope for becoming sanctified. And Paul responds to that protest with an illustration in verses 1 through 3. And what he says essentially, and I'm going to encapsulate for it, it's quite technical, but I've simplified it as best as I uh, know how. What he says here essentially is that just as under the law of Moses, the death of a husband uh, uh, then freed the wife to remarry without violating the law of Moses, death brings an end to her previous relationship with her husband. He then goes on to declare that the Christian has become dead to the law through the death of Christ, through the body of Christ. In other words, just as death breaks the marriage relationship, so too the death of the Christian with Christ 
breaks the jurisdiction of the law over him. Paul never says that the law is dead. It isn't. It continues to do its work in an unsaved world. He is saying that we as Christians have died to the law upon becoming a Christian. That though the law had once condemned us to death, and rightfully so, that when we trusted in Jesus for salvation, we died to the old lives that we once lived. We became a new creation. Our identity is now lost in Him. His resurrection uh, life is in us. The old person we once were no longer exists to serve uh, the death the law once sentenced us to. And that since Jesus died as our representative, we died with Him. In other words, in Jesus' death, he fulfilled all of the claims of the law by fulfilling them completely. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, and he did. And then by paying the awful penalty that the law demanded concerning sin. And since we are now dead to sin, and alive to God by virtue of the spiritual birth, by virtue of becoming a part of the body of Christ. The death that he died becomes our death with regard to the law of Moses. It is, again, a highly technical argument that he lays out here. That's the best that I can do uh, to simplify it. And whether we understand every nuance of the argument or not, it doesn't change the fact of what Paul is declaring to us as Christians. Number one, that death severs one's relationship with the law. And number two, release from the law now enables us to be joined to another, to be joined to Christ, to accomplish, among other things, Jesus accomplishing it in us, a holiness that would never, ever be even remotely possible under the law of Moses. You notice in verse 4 that uh, Paul speaks this regarding the law of Moses and our freedom from it, not so that we become lawless as Christians, as we'll see more fully in chapter 8, so that we become sin-crazed as Christians as a result, but in order to bear fruit to God. In other words, our relationship with Jesus will produce a holiness in our life that the law of Moses could never hope to accomplish in, in any of us. And then Paul gives us a, a hint of what is to come in chapter 8 by making mention of the Holy Spirit in verse 6, that it is only the Holy Spirit who can provide the kind of holiness that God desires for the Christian. The law cannot provide this to us. Guilt and condemnation can never produce a holy life. I'll say it again. Guilt and condemnation can never produce a holy life, not a truly holy life. We need a motivation for holiness and the accompanying power to accomplish it that only the Holy Spirit can supply more about that another time. So sufficient to say for point number one, that the first thing I need in order to avoid the absolute misery 
of what is known as a Roman 7 Christianity is to understand I am no longer under the law of Moses as a Christian, that it will never, I will never make myself holy through law or through human effort, which is what the law of Moses represents. Paul then moves on in verses 7 through 13, and he gives us kind of a brief primer uh, on, uh, on the law uh, of Moses. And he tells us now uh, why the law of Moses can never accomplish this within, within our lives. But he begins by, in verse 7 by vindicating the law, by defending the law of Moses. And he declares the law isn't sin. He tells us that there's nothing wrong with the law. The law of Moses came from God. Uh, The 613 commandments that make up the Pentateuch, the 10 commandments that make up uh, the two tablets of the law, all of that came from a holy God. There's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. It's good, it's moral, and it's holy. But God's intent in giving the law of Moses was never that it was, it was never intended to be a means by which we would be saved by keeping it. The law of Moses was given uh, to us to show that there's something wrong with us as human beings, to expose us as sinners who are in need of a Savior, uh, to, to reveal to us our need of, of salvation that's found in Christ. The law is a moral line. And it is an absolutely true plumb line. And when you take those 613 commandments of the law of Moses and you put them up against any of our lives, that line is so straight and so true and so perfectly so that when you put it up against even the best person in the world, it will reveal us to be crooked inside and out. And, it, and, and so, it, it, when it's laid against any of our lives, it does what it's supposed to do. It reveals us to be sinners who are in need of a Savior. Paul talks about it in the book of Galatians chapter 3, and he describes the law as a schoolmaster uh, to bring us to Christ. He's a tutor. He's a teacher. The law teaches us one thing. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior. And then the Holy Spirit will bring us into contact with Jesus as that Savior. But it's a schoolmaster, it's a teacher. And once a person becomes a Christian, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. The teacher has done its job. It has brought us to Christ. And at that point, the law of Moses hands us off to Jesus for him to accomplish in our lives what the law was never intended to do and what only Christ can produce in us by his Holy uh, Spirit. And Jesus then proceeds to take us the rest of the way. The law of Moses is fabulous in its own way. It's a blessed thing because it revealed me to be a sinner in a way that I could not deny and it revealed me to need a Savior, and it prepared me for the message of the gospel so that when I heard about Jesus, I would put my trust in him. Now, uh, Paul illustrated how all of this uh, uh, law in, in terms of conviction, how it operated in his own life. 
and, and, he, and he gets very, very personal when you get here now in, in this particular section of, uh, of, of Romans here in, in, in verse 7 and, and beyond. Paul uh, moves from, uh, in terms of personal pronouns, he moves from we now to I. He's talking about his own life experience. And, and he illustrates from his own life concerning uh, the conviction that the law brought into his life and that that conviction came from the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments. And that is the commandment, thou shalt not uh, covet. And, and, uh, and that's the commandment that got to him somewhere along uh, the way in his, in his Christian life. And so he takes the Ten Commandments out, and evidently here he is, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, concerning the law blameless as in his own estimation in comparison to other people. And he takes out the Ten Commandments, and he begins to read them. You shall uh, have no other God before me. Check. No idolatry. Check. No taking the Lord's name in vain. Check. Keeping the Sabbath, check. Honoring father and mother, check. No murder, check. No adultery, check. No stealing, check. No lying, check. But then when he gets to the final commandment, the commandment not to covet, that it, here is a commandment that not only speaks of outward actions, but it speaks of inward attitudes, and it speaks of thoughts. And then finally he realizes that sin is not only defined, but what we do outwardly, but we can be a sinner in, 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 completely on the inside, even if we're able to protect other people from seeing it in terms of expression within our lives. And here, when he read about thou shalt not covet, and he realized that was a sin in his life, he realized I'm busted. And Paul was busted and exposed as a sinner. And Paul is basically saying, this is what the law does, and it does it very good. Thou shalt not covet, got the Apostle Paul. Some other uh, law from the Ten Commandments or beyond gets each and every one of us. But every one of us ends up exposed as sinners by the law uh, of, of Moses. And it makes us conscious of sin, and it reveals sin. But the great problem with uh, looking to the law of Moses uh, in order to produce holiness within our lives and sanctification, uh, Paul not only tells us that it, it cannot produce sanctification, but he tells us why in verses 8 through 13. In verses 8 and 9, it, this, this is so fabulous, only God could know us this well. Only the one who created us could know us this well. And he tells us in Romans 8 and 9 that the law provokes sin. That is, the law provokes sin within us by constantly reminding me of my sin. And when the law reminds me and convicts me of my sin, it produces all manner of evil desire within me. This is so fabulous, I'm almost speechless on it. In other words, what Paul is communicating here is that our flesh is so fallen, our flesh is so perverse, that even when it is reminded by something as holy as the law of Moses not to commit certain sins, that the very mention of the sin by way of prohibition provokes a desire within me 
to commit it. That's how deeply broken and fallen we are as descendants of Adam and Eve. And we all recognize this from our own personal experience in life. For instance, here you are walking uh, around minding your own business someplace, and you come up upon a no smoking sign. And the thought hadn't entered your mind at all to have a smoke. But the prohibition, it's a good prohibition. It's a healthy prohibition. It's a holy prohibition in many respects. And yet the very prohibition makes me think about the last time I had a cigarette, even if you're not a smoker. And if you are a smoker, you finally stop thinking about cigarettes for 10 minutes until now you got a sign telling you not to smoke and you're thinking about smoking. It just provokes a desire within us. I think about, and I saw it just yesterday, uh, a keep out sign hung on a door. And how many times, I mean, you, you, I, I could walk past that door a thousand times and never have the slightest thought uh, of what's on the other side of it. The moment you put a keep out sign on that door, I want to know everything about that door, and I want to know what's in that room, and I want to know what is it keeping me from. It's probably keeping me from being electrocuted in what's inside of that room. The law is good. The law is right. The law is there for my safety. But even the prohibition for my good provokes a very perverse curiosity within me to break the law. I want to open that door up now and go into that, into that room. I'll never forget being an elementary school age boy and being in our classroom and the local fire marshal came to our elementary school to instruct each of the classes on, on concerning fire dangers that were to be found in each of our homes. And he took rubbing alcohol and put it in this metal basin and poured it in there and put a match to it, and it lit up. And this was supposed to (laughs) make us never want to do that at home. And then, as if he wasn't on the wrong track enough, he he then pulled out a, a, a can of aerosol hairspray. And he, and he lit a cigarette lighter, and he blew that hairspray into that cigarette lighter, and something resembling a flamethrower uh, developed as a, as a result of that. This was back in the day where, I mean, people had really stiff hair, women did, and they'd go to the beauty parlor once a week, and they'd be thing, and you could take it off and put it right by, by your bed. This was strong stuff. Was, but I don't know the impact he thought he was having. But as boys, we could not wait to get home and light rubbing alcohol on fire in the tub at home and, and lock the door of the, bed, uh, of the bathroom and find some source of flame and take our mother's hairspray. And, uh, and it's a wonder anybody's house uh, survived I- any of it. The prohibition, good prohibitions, wise prohibitions, holy prohibitions, all of them for our good, but they just provoked a desire. And again, there's nothing wrong with the law or any of its prohibitions. They are vital in life, but it speaks to the absolute brokenness and perversity of our flesh. 
our Adamic nature that even prohibitions against what is wrong can produce this kind of response. He tells us in verses 10 and 11 that the law brings death. The law always brings death. It cannot impart spiritual life, not in a sinner and not in a saint. All law can ever do is to continually condemn, and it will only destroy what uh, spiritual life and joy we do have. He talks about uh, all uh, the deceit of, uh, of, of all of this. And it's important to know that sin lies, and, and the flesh, they lie. And what they try to do, it's a very sophisticated lie, and we fall for it. But what sin in the flesh will do uh, for, for self-preservation is they will lie to us and try and convince us that they can be overcome by law. Don't turn to the Holy Spirit. Don't turn to any of that aspect of the Christian life. Keep plugging along the way, the way that you are. And, and sin tells us and the flesh tells us, yes, you're, only, you're partway there. You're getting there. You're on the right path. You're on the right track. You will defeat us by, by means of this law. But the fact of the matter is, and the reason sin in the flesh lies to us in this way, is that sin in the flesh will never cooperate in their own death. You cannot defeat the flesh with the flesh. It will not cooperate in its own uh, death. And so, sin and the flesh, they promise that they can be defeated by the law, but all that lie does is to bring a, a death, to bring an end to our hopes for a holy life. And Paul knew all about it. In verses 12 through 14, again, Paul closes as he began, declaring, the law is good, but it exposes uh, sin to be exceedingly sinful. It reveals us to be, humanly speaking, hopelessly slaves of sin. And the good thing that the law of Moses does in that regard is it keeps us from trivializing sin or from minimizing sin, and it forces us to face how awful sin is and the bondage that it holds uh, me in. And that's a tremendous blessing in, in bringing us uh, to salvation. That conviction, the condemnation of sin, so vital in, in bringing us to a, a place where we become Christians, but it becomes a curse if I now use the law to try and to become holy. Paul then closes finally in verses 15 through 25, and he describes, I mean, you can almost taste it. He describes how the absolutely miserable Christian life that results when a Christian attempts to live the Christian life, again, on the basis of laws or on the basis of their own strength and determination. Again, the single great weakness of the law is that it sets this very high uh, standard of conduct for our lives inside and out, but it never provides one tiny bit of power to then help us reach that standard. So all it ever can do is condemn. 
And so we see the condemnation. This is an absolute description of the absolutely uh, condemned uh, Christian life. And Paul writes from his own experience in verse 15, and he encapsulates it for all of us that try and, 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 and find uh, the Christian life in law or in, in self-effort. He says in verse 15, what I will to do, and he's talking about godliness, that I do not practice. And here it is in his heart. I mean, most of us recognize it from somewhere in our Christian life where he says, I want to live the life I see described in the Scriptures. I'm even determined to live the life that I see described in the Christians, in, in, in the Scriptures, but I always fail. He possesses the will. He possesses the desire, but he lacks the power. He lacks the ability, and you can, you can feel it uh, as, he, as he describes it. In verse 15, he goes on to say, what I hate, I do. In other words, I hate my sin. I hate the life I'm living. And no amount of determination on my part changes anything. It always ends in failure. And the problem is a problem of power. Again, in verse 17, I, he says, I don't want to live a life of sin. I don't want to live it. I don't want to live a life of sin. But every time push comes to shove, sin wins every time in my life. And he goes on in verse 18. I want to live a godly life. But my flesh is so completely uncooperative that as a result, though I have a desire to do so, I lack the power to do so. I lack the how. And I want you to notice that in verse 18, and I want you to circle it. If not with your, uh, with your pen, then at least with your eyes. It's a key to the entire chapter. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present. I want to live this life. But how to perform what is good I do not find. He did not lack the desire. He lacked the power. He lacked the how of being able uh, to do it. Then in verse 19, in essence, he declares, and, and how many can recognize it, my life is the exact opposite of what I want it to be, but I lack the power to change it. And then in verse 20, the power of sin in my life is even greater than my strong desire to turn from sin. Every effort that I make to live a holy life, it ends in sin. I hate it. I'm defeated every time. Every time I try, I end up being defeated by sin. And I mean, you, you feel the, the absolute misery of it. And then in verses 21 through 23, the idea is, I want to do good. There is a part of me that delights in the law of God. There's a part of me that delights in spiritual things, but my flesh and the law of sin, they continually unite together and they defeat me. I'm not getting just defeated from without. I'm not just getting defeated by the devil and by temptation. I'm getting defeated by within. I'm getting defeated by my old nature and by, by sin. I'm losing to myself. And verse 22 is, 
is the verse that most Bible scholars and, and Bible commentators uh, use to look at that and, and, uh, and, and settle the argument uh, as some people look at the chapter and say, this is not a description of a Christian having this kind of a battle. This can only be a description of someone who isn't yet born again. It's almost like there's too much honesty here. This is to, you know, whether, and, and yet, as Paul said in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward uh, uh, man. And uh, an unsaved person, as Paul has already established earlier in the book of Romans, does not delight in the law according, uh, the law of God according to the inward man. You're talking about uh, a Christian. And then in verse uh, 24, the, the, the cry, uh, it's so palpable, the, just the cry of self-disgust and frustration. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. And the word wretched is an interesting one. It actually means wretched, but it also means miserable. It means pathetic. And Paul's use of the word, it's not hyperbole. He doesn't say what will sound good in this verse. He said what I'm describing here is a wretched existence. It's, it's a, a pathetic, miserable existence. I am wretched and miserable and pathetic. I'm disgusted and sickened with myself, with my failures. God, I love you. You know that I love you. I want to be everything you want me to be. I'm so sorry. I'm such a failure. And this is where every attempt to live the Christian life in my own strength and human effort ends. It always ends ultimately in failure. But it's not a total loss when it does. And when, and, and I hit the wall in this regard, because after having tried to live this Christian life with everything that I have within me, in my own strength, and I come to this wretched, miserable condition, it then makes us cry out what is the remainder of verse 24. It prepares us then to cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death? To realize the life that I described, the, Christ, the life that I read described in the Scriptures is never going to be accomplished in the I, me, my, myself. This is never going to be accomplished in my own strength, my own determination, not even in the greatness of my love and gratitude to God. This is only going to be accomplished in a who that is someone other than me. And so, as he speaks here about this, and he looks now to someone greater than himself to provide the power to live the Christian life that he longs to live, and that who is the key to escaping the Romans chapter 7 Christianity. And that who is described. It is God alone through Jesus Christ our Lord who has provided us with a power that is greater than both our sin and also our sin nature. And that power is provided to us, as he will declare in Romans chapter 8, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he closes verse 20, 
5 here, uh, and he restates the entire Roman 7 conflict one final time before formally now heading into uh, Romans chapter 8, and uh, when he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with a mind I myself serve the law of God. I know it's right. I know it's good. But with the flesh, the law of sin, I fail and fail and fail. And what's important to remember is that when Paul sent this, Roman, this, this letter to the Romans, there were no chapter breaks. Chapter breaks came long, long, uh, centuries and centuries afterwards. He continues his whole line of thought. He's not starting a new thought when he gets into Romans chapter 8 and now begins to formally uh, speak about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He's continuing his argument. And so, as we've been in chapter 6, and I told you to hold your thought, is we would get into chapter 7, and now we finish chapter 7, and I say, hold your thought until, Lord willing, we return to chapter 8 uh, two weeks from now uh, after Resurrection Sunday. And so, don't sin for the next two weeks. <laughs> but I think as you look at Romans chapter 7, most of us recognize this as a stage in our sanctification. Whether we spend a day there or a week there, or a month there, or a year there, or decades there, or whether you look and sit here this morning and you say, I know I'm born again, but that's where I live. And I've never known anything other than Romans 7 concerning my life. I love him. I know he's the truth. I know the Word of God is the Word of God. And I know it's all good. But my life, if the truth be made known, I feel continually in the face of sin. I have never, ever, 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 this is, this is where I've lived all of my Christian life. I don't know anything other than that. And I certainly recognize my season in Romans chapter 8. I loved God. He saved me. He forgave me. He changed my life, gave me everlasting life. And it was just like, all right, Lord, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and and uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this in my own strength, and I'm going to show. I'll show you, Lord. Not and and I'll prove to you. Didn't make a mistake. I'll, I'm going to make you happy. And then and spent my time in Romans chapter seven until I could finally uh, break out of it. And then, as we would spend some portion of our life in Romans chapter seven, we all learn exactly the same thing, and to realize that apart from the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this would be, each of us would be mired in this uh, misery, saved, forgiven, on our way to heaven, absolutely, but forced to live a life in bondage to, to sin and in complete defeat until we get there. Isn't it a marvel? It takes the Holy Spirit to, to escape, Romans chapter 7, and to realize and appraise the Lord for the Holy Spirit that, that Christianity is not Romans chapter 7, but it is what Paul then describes in chapter 8. What a miserable thing if Christianity were Romans chapter 7, but what a sad thing that so many Christians, even Christians, think that it is. And, and, it's, and it's just the saddest, saddest Christian life. And if you're a Christian this morning and you are stuck in this place, realize what Christianity is not. It is not God saving you. 
and then giving you a bunch of commandments that you're to now endeavor to obey in your own strength. And I think that a, a lot of people, again, are not well taught related to the Holy Spirit and the Christian life, and that's all they know. And they try to live it in their own strength and fail continually, and then finally they give up on Christianity in their own mind, at least on, on, on some level, and they just think it didn't work for me. And maybe you've run into that kind of person. Maybe you feel that way today. I've, I've run into people through the years, and they say, I tried it. I tried it. I tried to do it. I couldn't do it. And not realizing you were in Romans chapter eight, 7, and you never got into chapter 8, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed, and they tried, and they tried, and they tried, and they came to church every Sunday, and the preacher told them how to try harder and how to try harder and gave them four new laws for them to keep in the coming week, and they just got crushed underneath of it and feeling like they've experienced genuine Christianity and failed at it, then walk away from it and say, it didn't work for me. And worse than that, is to begin to cast doubt within their minds that it works for anyone or that it's true at all and not realizing they never got out of Romans chapter 8 or 7 and then into chapter 8. And this morning, if you're in that place today, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to talk with you today and pray with you and for you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit that provides us with the power to be a witness unto Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, in any environment that we might find ourselves in. And it's all there for the asking, and it's all there for the receiving. Come forward and get some help and, and move into Romans 8 and talking with someone here today. Uh, and don't wait two weeks until uh, we come together to do this once again. This, this, a Bible study like this this morning, is, it, it, it's such a great advertisement for home fellowships. And the home fellowships with the Sunday morning service is, the sermon is discussed and applied and, and taken apart and, and, and how does it fit our lives and so forth. And that very thing will be happening in home fellowships through, through the week and avail yourself uh, of that. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know that God will not only forgive you of your sins, I say it on His behalf, He will not only forgive you of your sins, but he will and not only provide you with everlasting life in heaven uh, one day, but he will also give you the power to live a life free from the bondage of sin and the bondage of self. And I will say something else that is extraordinarily exclusive, and that is he is the only one who can offer that to you. You will not find it anywhere else. And to fail to come to him and to receive that power of the Holy Spirit into your life, to, be, to have a greater victory in your life than even the pull of sin in the person of the Holy Spirit, and, 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 and the importance of that. And without that, all, all life becomes is whack-a-mole. And it's like, you know, you've got 12-step programs and all kinds of things for alcohol and drugs and all, this kind, and all these different things. I'm glad for everybody that gets freed from whatever particular bondage is about to destroy them and their family. But what Christ offers is something infinitely superior in this. 
And that what happens is, sure, we get maybe drinking under control or something like that, but then what happens is the next sin that wants to take us under control and into bondage pops its head back up, and then we address that up, and it pops, and it pops, and it pops, and you can't keep up with all of the manifestations of the sin nature, all of the sins that want to express itself in our lives. And life becomes this miserable moving from one addiction to the next addiction to the next addiction and hating ourselves and the person that we've become. And bondage to sin. And Jesus comes into human history and offers us salvation, the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, a future in heaven, but also a victory over the power of sin so that we might live a life that we would never otherwise know. And that, too, is there for the asking and for the receiving. And these same men and women up in front after the service would love to pray with you and for you to begin that relationship with God that you have been created for. And they will be careful uh, to not mire you down in Romans chapter 7, but move you on into Romans chapter 8, the fullness of, of what Christ has purchased for us. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, who could know us like this but you? Only our Creator could know us the way you know us. And only a holy, righteous, truthful God would tell us the truth when no one else will tell us the truth, not only about our problems and our sin, but then the truth about salvation. We bless you this morning from this little place, 4300 American Avenue in Modesto, California. We bless you for who you are and for being the God that you are. We bless you for our Savior today. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for this time in Romans chapter 7. And we pray, Lord, that you would confirm this chapter with accompanying signs and wonders in delivering every single person within the shot of my voice that is mired here and to deliver them out, Lord, out of a Christianity that is not what you have provided and into the fullness of what you have. And I ask these things, and we ask these things for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.